have no idea what either of you just said because you were like talking at once and then the recording voice was talking and it was just like ah oh, we, we both we both just said oh oh <laughs> like very midwestern oh, that's not the most midwestern thing i ever did here <laughs> what was that accent I'm just gonna let you I went a little like I I went a little like southern um I don't know, have you ever seen Oklahoma the musical? I was channeling that. Yeah. This episode of Talking Underwater is brought to you by Census, a xylem brand. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Laura Nelchella, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor of Water and Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we are discussing reopening building systems following prolonged closures. We will also discuss some major infrastructure pa- packages passed in the Senate on May 6th that pertain to the water industry. And the theme of this month's episode is smart water. So we'll bring you more information on that, as well as an interview with Ed Quilty, CEO of Aquatic Informatics. So first, let's just uh, kick off with a little bit of discussion about reopening building systems following prolonged closures. So as of the date this podcast is recorded, which would be May 8th, 2020, uh, 43 states are beginning efforts to reopen uh, prolonged closures following uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 concerns. And this has been a pretty big discussion topic among my audience. So I'm interested to hear how it's pertaining to Bob and Katie's audience as well. Um, the the concern is that many buildings have been closed and had stagnant water for periods of two to three months, something that many building managers are previously unprepared for. So with my audience, a big focal point of this conversation is getting awareness out of some of the concerns associated with having uh, reopening water systems following prolonged closures, which you know, include lead from corrosion and also uh, an increased risk of Legionella growth due to stagnation of water for a prolonged period of time. Um, so my audience is concerned with making sure that building owners are aware of these risks and also making sure that water treatment devices are being properly maintained and brought into use again with proper flushing procedures. So I'm just a little bit to hear, curious to hear from Bob and Katie if you guys have heard anything from your audience about how this impacts maybe the municipal side of both the drinking water and the wastewater sphere and, and how as well as small businesses, how they're approaching reopening their system. Yeah, I haven't really heard anything on this in particular, but my intuition would suspect that this could change wastewater flows and pressure in drinking water systems because those areas where no one has been, the pressure might be different now. Um, I and of course the wastewater flows would change as people go into those buildings and flush toilets and use sinks and all that kind of stuff. So that's my initial inclination is that it might be something to look at from a flow and pressure perspective and how that actually impacts the the network 
as a whole for whatever you, municipality or utility is managing that stuff. So, mm -hmm. I think the community outreach element is really important here too. Let's talk to a number of experts on this subject. And uh, what was really startling to me is that there's really not very much guidance. Uh, out there about how to reopen building water systems just because buildings don't tend to close for this long a period of time generally. So there's just not a lot of information about what to do. And so I think it's on the water industry to uh, be proactive in communicating with their communities. And there are resources about how to safely reopen building water systems. Like American Water Workers Association has one. So does NSF International. <clears throat> the Purdue University Center for Plumbing Safety and CDC does have some guidance on reopening the water systems too. So I point listeners uh, to those sources and ask them to share them with their communities as well. Um, Katie, I think you had some news to bring to the table about some pretty big infrastructure packages on this um, slated to happen right now. I did. Yeah, thank you. So um, the news this week is that a major water infrastructure package passed in the Senate on May 6th. Both America's Water Infrastructure Act of 2020 and the Drinking Water Infrastructure Act of 2020 were approved. This approved legislation authorizes approximately $19.5 billion for Army Corps of Engineer projects and EPA wastewater treatment and drinking water programs. The next step for these is floor action, and Bloomberg Law reported that Congress essentially updates these legislation pieces every two years. So I just thought we could have a little discussion on what the, this means for our, the water industry. Yeah, yes. well, my first question is, I am not super versed on this particular piece of legislation, but after it goes to the floor, do you have any information about what kind of timeline that would be until it's bipartisanly passed and on the president's desk? Off the top of my head, I don't. I'm reading an article as we speak, but I don't. Off the top of my head, I don't know what the timeline would look like. Yeah, I'm not sure of the timeline either. But I, what I can say is that both of these things, the America's Water Infrastructure Act and the Drinking Water Infrastructure Act, they are generally re-up, like Bloomberg Law says, every two years. So there's a couple reasons why I think that this is more likely to pass than previous bills that we've seen before. One is that there's actual language behind this. It's approved and it's going to the actual floor. Two, we're in an election year. So voting to approve money for critical infrastructure like this looks really good to your voting base and can help you get reelected. And then three, there haven't been in any of the stimulus bills so far major investment into water infrastructure for like coronavirus stimulus bills. So I think this also elevates the importance of making sure that money gets into that water, critical water infrastructure industry. So I think that there's a lot of factors here that really highlight this is likely to pass and likely to inject money into the industry, but you're right, Lauren, the question of timeline and how soon it would be that that money is allocated and available for use is real, are really the key questions here that we don't have answers to. Yeah, and I'm looking at this Bloomberg article again, and it says that house passage for the measure is likely in the months ahead and that water bills benefit projects in every state. And so historically, they've gotten strong bipartisan backing. 
Yeah, that's true. They get a lot of bipartisan backing, and I believe that both of these bills do fund uh, state revolving funds as well, which have become uh, of increasing importance for water infrastructure projects. That was something that we noticed last year, and we expected would continue going forward into this year, especially considering that it is an election year, and there wasn't really much planned or understood of what actually would be passed this year. But seeing this where it is, it seems like it's voting no on this seems like it would be really bad optics than voting yes on it. So from that perspective of politics and whatnot, I would assume that it's more likely to pass than not. Yeah, and also another little tidbit in this article is that the last um, big authorization bill that was America's Water Infrastructure Act of 2018. Um, it easily passed in the House, and then it also went through the Senate by a vote of 99 to 1. So yeah. there's some more stats <laughs> yeah. for you. <laughs> I like those yeah, odds. Historically, yeah, historically has gone over really well. I remember that in 2018. That was toward the end of the year, too. I think it was signed in September or October of that year, if I'm remembering correctly. So it was kind of a late year authorization on the president's desk at that point. And I think that it probably I think it took effect January 1, but I'm not positive on that. I'd have to look at the bill to confirm. But uh, in other news, we wanted to talk this month is we have an interview with Ed Quilty, CEO of Aquatic Informatics. Sorry, Aquatic Informatics. He is going to talk a little bit about smart water and its importance and whatnot. But on that note, I wanted to mention a couple things that Water and Waste Digest is doing through the month of May on this subject. Every single day in May, we have shared a smart water article for what we are deeming smart water month. If you're looking for any articles on smart water, whether it's from monitoring, whether it's AMI or AMR information, data analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that stuff, we have articles every single day on that. You can find those articles by searching the hashtag smart water on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or going to any of the Water and Waste Digest social media pages and make sure to like and follow and get updates on those every single day. Uh, additionally, I am working on an article right now that's going into the June issue about the importance of smart systems and the acceleration of them due to the coronavirus pandemic and how adoption is changing rapidly in regards to those smart systems because of this uh, current environment and situation we find ourselves in. But for today, we're going to talk with Ed Quilty. He is the CEO of Aquatic Informatics, and here's what he had to say on smart water. Hey, everybody. This is Bob Crossan from Talking Underwater. I'm here with Ed Quilty. He is the CEO of Aquatic Informatics, and we're going to talk a little bit about smart water. So, Ed, welcome to the call. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, Let's start with the, the highest level that we can talk about, smart water, which is let's define what we're talking about here. Um, can you give me what you would define smart water as? Yeah, so, I mean, Aquatic Informatics is a software company, so my perspective is, is certainly focused on the digital side. So really I look at it as uh, utilities, in particular using digital tech um, to optimize operations and capital planning. So, you know, we've seen a, a higher adoption of instrumentation and software and, and now even data science in the last few years. 
uh, for more insight and greater resiliency. Um, yeah, so it'd be, you know, examples would be um, using SCADA systems, GIS, hydraulic models, um, and adding sensors into your network, both drinking water and on the, on the distribution and on the collection side, on the wastewater side. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm always reminded of is that just having AMR or AMI doesn't make your system smart. <laughs> you got to use that data somehow, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. It's, um, you know, data, uh, less than 1% of data is used. is sort of more of a, you know, a global statistics. And in the water industry, I think it's probably uh, much less than that. So, um, you know, as you said, you can have sensors out there. It doesn't mean you're actually getting a lot of insight. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Well, yeah, and then you think about historic data, too, and how a lot of utilities probably just have boxes of reams of paper that are just in a closet somewhere. I'm sure that that's also valuable, but it's hard to translate that over to this digital framework we're in now. Yeah, this is exactly it. And that data, um, if you can digitize it and bring it you know, to light of day, it's really valuable as we're starting to look at um, you know, using data science, combining different data sets. Uh, that historic stuff really helps you train the models. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we work with agencies you know, on the natural environment side, like the U.S. Geological Survey, they have data going back to the, you know, the 1870s, 1880s that they've digitized. It's become really valuable. Those long monitoring stations um, become, you know, the most valuable data sets. Yeah, yeah. Well, over the past three to five years, I, I'm kind of, that's been the time that I've been with the industry. So I've kind of seen only this part of smart water. How has smart water evolved over the years? And especially in the past three to five, where it seems like the intensity of the messaging has really exploded and grown. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think, um, you know, it's been a, a combination of a few things that have sort of really lit in a fire under it. Um, you know, one is um, low cost sensors or IOT. So those are, you know, certainly exploding in all markets and they're, and including water now, there's a pretty pretty much an exponential uh, rate of installation. Um, and then with the big data analytics and processing power opening up and artificial intelligence, so those platforms that you know were largely developed for other markets are now you know more ubiquitous and can be used in water. So I think that that changes are really a lot of technology is driven in other markets is now coming into water. Um, another trend we've seen is this concept of digital twins. Um, so, you know, again, this is used in other markets, but you're trying to get a, um, you know, a digital representation of your entire sort of watershed uh, or in your utility. And so you've got your physical assets, um, you know, your pumping stations, your treatment systems, um, and you use um, you know, digital technologies to try and forecast what's going to happen before it happens. So you can be more proactive. Um, we've also seen... Um, a move to more open data and open collaboration. So utilities or joining groups like the Swan Smart Water Network and, um, you know, working together, sharing insights on what they're learning, also kind of getting together and evaluating vendors. Um, so there's a lot of collaboration, um, you know, on top of this technology that's, you know, rapidly uh, evolving or exponentially evolving. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's two things that I wanted to touch on from that that you talked about. One is the digital twin. Um, so I'd like to touch on that just from a definition standpoint. Could you like give a brief definition of what a digital twin is? And then the other is talking about that coordination between utilities. You're all, I've also heard of it being between the different uh, verticals within a utility itself. So like the roads department will now talk to the stormwater department that now talks to the water department and how they all can coalesce their data in a really unique way. Yeah, that's right. 
That's exactly it. So, yeah, so a digital twin, um, that's where you really use, you know, computing power, um, data sources from across an organizations. You can have, like you said, multiple departments. You can have your IoT, your OT department, your AMI meters we talked about at the beginning a little bit, um, SCADA systems, um, um, customer information management, GIS, bringing all this information together and external data sources too, like weather data and river and groundwater data that might be collected by federal or state um, agencies. So, and then the third part of that is you can augment it with machine learning or artificial intelligence. That, that combination again is like you're bringing all the data together, trying to understand the system and then proactively determine, um, you know, what you think is gonna happen and then, you know, you can be more proactive rather than reactive. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and then just talking about that, that vertical alignment of things within a utility itself, you also have the idea of one water and connecting different water departments and different wastewater departments. And it sounds like that seems to be what these smart water networks are getting at is how do, how do we all connect to each other in this unique way? Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a more holistic approach. Um, you know, you're looking at, at water really is, it has value for the environment, um, for obviously people, for industry, it's got the economic value. So considering all of that, but really look through the whole, you know, water cycle from raindrop um, through people, through, you know, farms, animals, through industry, back into the receiving environment. And then that's, you know, upstream to someone else or another group or user. And so this whole, you know, cycle of, you know, water, gets recycled and reused, um, you know, naturally. And so that's definitely part of the, the one, water, one Water platform. And then having partnerships, like you said, you know, for sharing data um, between organizations and even with departments, which, um, you know, it's been, you know, very hard for many of these utilities. They often work on their own operations. If it's the, you know, the transportation group, they're less concerned about the drinking water side, you know, so if they can come together and share assets like communications and, data management systems it can give uh, tremendous value. Yeah, yeah. So when it comes to the adoption side of things, what are some of the traditional barriers that you're that are run into for utilities when it comes to trying to adopt these new technologies? You did yeah. mention that sensors are kind of falling in price and that's helped out a lot, but what are some of the barriers that are that are still there? Yeah, I think it's a few. I think the largest ones in, in my view are really the sort of political silos more than the technology <laughs> silos. You know, there's a lot of like we talked about different departments and, and sharing that data. Um, it really is a drive of a, you know, a change in culture. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not a way that you know, a lot of these uh, utilities or the water segments really operated in the past. So there, there is a, a greater movement now to cooperation and, and sharing, but that still is a, you know, a barrier. Um, some other ones would be just, you know, the, like I said, the, it's a pretty complicated landscape as far as the technologies and utilities, um, you know, and the water market in general, there's not um, a lot of appetite for doing a lot of it. trial and error. They simply, you know, don't have excess budgets. And so they, you know, streamlining that, you know, assessment of technologies and procurement is really important. So that's where you're seeing utilities getting together, uh, municipalities and working with other ones, you know, in the county or in the state uh, or in the province and, um, and trying to have a more efficient process for evaluating technology and sharing best practices. Yeah, yeah. That political thing I have heard at several conferences where it's just some people are 
too scared or they had one run in and it didn't work the way that they wanted it to work and they just were like never again kind of thing there's a there's kind of it's almost grudge like in a way for some utilities that uh don't don't want to adopt so i totally understand that political thing that you're, you're mentioning there yeah i mean change is hard for you know any organizations and particular ones that have been working largely the same way for 100 years um change is very hard but i, I think we are on the, the verge of pretty rapid change in the water industry yeah, well, and speaking of rapid change, I mean, with this coronavirus, I've heard that there's been kind of a rapid adoption of some of these smart technologies. It seems that investment in them is more important now than ever because you can more easily social distance and <laughs> like a lot of that stuff. Could you talk a little bit about how that, what that impact is right now and uh, what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it really compressed time. So what we were anticipating was going to take um, years, you know, at an accelerated rate uh, from past rates, but really it was going to take years. We're seeing that rapidly compressed. So uh, we're seeing, we've got customers like Welsh Water in the UK that they've been able to go relatively uninterrupted. 80% of their workforce can work remotely from home. Uh, whereas other utilities that aren't quite as far along in their digital journey, uh, they're in a very tough spot, right? It might be 10, 15% of the utility. Um, so, you know, I see more of that. So we've seen that in our own um, you know, uh, market segments in our customer base, uh, a real acceleration over the last uh, two months um, to using cloud, to moving to software more quickly. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, for us actually, uh, during this pandemic, it hasn't slowed things down at all. It's actually, we've excited, we're very busy right now, uh, helping customers uh, try and work remotely and more efficiently and leverage uh, technology. Um, so, you know, I think that's, um, you know, maybe one of the silver linings in the pandemic is that there, there will be this, I, I think, drive for utilities to modernize more quickly. Mm -hmm. So that's hopefully going to be one outcome. We're seeing that right now. Yeah. Well, and you're not the only one that I've heard say that. So it's, it's, yeah, pretty, yeah. it seems pretty common that a lot of utilities are like, yeah, we really, we're looking at remote monitoring now because it helps, helps us a lot. And the advantages of all those systems still stay with you afterward too. It's not a, it's only good now thing. It's a, it's a process change that is good for the future too. Yeah, exactly. If you look at some of the issues in the water market, like uh, sewer overflows, where there's trillions of gallons overflowing, you know, every year in, in U.S. and Canada, um, you know, adding smart sensors, having a, a smart sewer shed um, will allow you to really proactively uh, get out and do maintenance and, and fix problems before you have those overflows. I think the US EPA estimates that about 80% of those overflows, and there's, you know, thousands of them every year, could be prevented with just improved operations. And that, you know, the technology allows you to do that much more efficiently. Yeah. Well, to close out, why don't we talk a little bit about kind of the future? What's going to, where do you see smart water headed? I've, I've obviously drinking water has been a big major push for that, especially early on with the metering side of things. But I've also been hearing more about want interest in smart water and, or smart wastewater rather. Um, so what, what's, what do you see as the future for smart water and smart wastewater in general? Yeah, I mean, um, again, with the sort of similar to the, the pandemic, we're seeing an acceleration there. I think this will sort of kick it off. But um, yeah, in particular on the uh, smart sewer sheds, we're seeing that move very quickly. A lot of interest. We've got more than a thousand utilities as customers. And we've got a lot of interest from those in learning how they can, you know, add sensors, instruments in, um, how to optimize pumping so that if a big storm does hit, under a you know, uh, changing climate regime, 
they're more resilient. They can maybe move the move the flow around to a different part of the city where they got more capacity. They can optimize their energy use for pumping. Um, so definitely seeing more of that. And a lot of this is driven by you know tapping into those data silos. So connecting the different data sets, um, bringing them together. Having a, you know a digital twin, I think, will be a, a really important um, part of it. And then you know on top of that digital twin is part of it, building algorithms using artificial intelligence, you know, machine learning to predict what's going to happen and get really prescriptive. So you're um, instead of doing a sort of a, a planned you know maintenance schedule you do every week, hitting the different things based on just the way the your organization has done it for for you know decades, be more likely driven by you know data. So totally data driven. Get up in the morning, head to work, and you've got a list based on what's changed in the last 24 hours, the climate that's coming, where assets might be failing. Um, you're directed to those areas to try and do some, you know, uh, uh, some advanced work. And so it's really prescriptive. Uh, get out there before you do get an close the, the sewer beds. Yeah, yeah. You kind of cut out there at the end, but we got the gist of it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, chatting with us, and it'd be great to, to chat with you more further down the line. Hopefully, there will be a live event that we can see each other at sometime yeah. soon. Well, thanks so much, Ed, for the interview and talking to us about Smart Water. We really appreciate your time. Uh, before we end, we wanted to do our normal housekeeping with stuff. For Water and Waste Digest, we are currently accepting nominations for top projects and industry icon. You can find the nomination forms from that on the front page of our website. Go to www.dmag.com. At the top, it says awards. In that dropdown, you have links to all of the awards programs that we offer, and you can find nomination forms that way. And uh, SWS is now accepting abstracts for the 2021 NAHB International Builder Show Stormwater Pavilion. You can share your stormwater expertise with the building industry. Submit your abstract by visiting bit.ly slash IBS stormwater abstracts. Um, and the deadline for that is May 22nd. I have one more thing I wanted to mention as well. We are conducting a follow survey for our coronavirus market impact for WWD. That survey link is at bit.ly slash WWD COVID survey, the number two. So go there, fill out the survey. It takes only three minutes. We want to understand how attitudes have shifted or changed over time. And we wanted to do a shout out to the two-year anniversary of Talking Water podcast, which is quickly approaching. It is May 25th is the anniversary. Uh, our very first episode two years ago covered Cape Town and Day Zero. And while some of our hosts have maybe changed a little bit since then, our mission, uh, the One Water mission that we share on this podcast still aligns. So if we have any faithful listeners out there who have been with us from day one, we appreciate you and we appreciate you following along on the journey and, and following along on the mission. Yeah, and that week we will have some special stuff on our Twitter. So definitely go follow us at TUW Podcast on Twitter, and we'll be sharing some memories from throughout that week. So definitely check that out. Don't also don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and anywhere else you get podcasts. And if you'd like to reach us 
to ask us questions or to provide some commentary on things that we have shared with you in our episodes, please email talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at P-U-W Podcast. Yep, that's all for this episode. Talk to you later, guys.